0: Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter three. That's where we're going to be uh, today. If you're uh, if you're new here, uh, or if you haven't been here in a few weeks, basically our church is going through a series called Truth Matters, and uh, the purpose of the series is Four Oaks is uh, proposing a new Statement of Faith. It's the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith. And for the past uh, couple of weeks, we've been going through each article of this new Statement of Faith. So we're going to continue along that line. Before we jump into the actual article, I want to start with a little story. This is a story about Martin Luther. In the cold... Winter of 1546 in Eiselben, Germany, Martin Luther, who was the great uh, Protestant reformer, he single handedly started the Protestant Reformation, was dying in a bed. He was away from his home, he was on uh, pastoral business, so his wife Catherine was far away, and he was all alone in this little cottage. And as his health started to deteriorate, he did what he did usually every day. He would write notes and ideas and thoughts and all these different things, letters of correspondence. And he didn't realize how close death was to his door. And at the end of one particular day, he finishes his list of notes, and at the very end, he writes down the last words he would ever write. His final words. It's a very simple phrase. It was six words, half of them in Latin, half in German. And he wrote, We are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. This is true. What would possess a man, moments before his death, to write something like that? How could he be so filled with a sense of awe and wonder that everything in life is brimming with grace from God? I think it was because of the doctrine that we're going to talk about today. It was the doctrine that Luther spent his entire life fighting for. And that's the doctrine of justification by faith. How sinners can be justified before God, so I'm going to read to you Article Number Eight of the Gospel Coalition st- uh, Statement of Faith. This is the justification of sinners. We believe that Christ, by His obedience and death, fully discharged the debt of all those who are justified. By His sacrifice, He bore in our stead the punishment due us for our sins, making a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice on our behalf. By his perfect obedience, he satisfied the just demands of God on our behalf, since by faith alone, that perfect obedience is credited to all who trust in Christ alone for their acceptance with God. Inasmuch as Christ was freely, inasmuch as Christ was given by the Father for us, and his obedience and punishment were accepted in place of our own, freely and not for anything in us, this justification is solely of free grace in order that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. And we believe that a zeal for personal and public obedience flows from this free justification. That's a lot of words. But here's justification by faith in a nutshell. We've got different components. Justification, the word, is a legal declaration by God. That a sinner is righteous, blameless, morally upright. And when we say justification by faith, what we mean is that we are declared righteous by faith, by believing in Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's justification by faith. Got that? That's the end of my sermon. Let's pray. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. In Romans 3, and I'll, and, I'll go ahead and I'll just go ahead and read that, and we'll, we'll, we'll dive in. This is Romans chapter 3, where we're going to see this doctrine of justification by faith. We're going to pick it up in verse 19 and go to 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This portion of Romans 3 is like a little seed. It's dense, and it's densely packed, but in this seed is the DNA and all the raw material of a giant oak tree. And Paul in Romans 3 is planting that seed, and the rest of Romans is watching that seed grow. So it's going to be hard to pull out every little thing out of this text, but I'm going to simplify it and and just bring out three pillar truths or cardinal rules about what justification means. And the three main ideas, the three things that justification tells us, first is that justification means nobody can save themselves. Nobody can save themselves. Second... Justification means that our only hope is Christ. And third, justification means that God is righteous. So those are the three pillars that we're going to dig into, and I hope and that, that we would leave here with a, a larger view of God and his glory and the grace that he has shown So let's jump in. First point, justification means nobody can save themselves. Paul starts by saying we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world is held accountable to God. So Paul starts where we have to start. He starts with the law of God. And he paints this picture of a legal courtroom. And in this courtroom, God is the judge And his standard is his law, and we are on trial. Earlier in Romans 2, Paul says that there is going to be a day where God will judge all men, and that God will give every man what he deserves. So for a man who is living a righteous life, a man who lives a perfect life, a moral life, a life perfectly in cohesion with God's character, he will receive eternal life and immortality. But for those of us who do not do that, who are unrighteous, who break God's law, there is wrath and fury. And on that day, those are the only two categories that exist. There is no middle ground. You're either in one camp or you're in the other. And this is the backdrop for Paul's argument throughout this entire portion of Scripture. Now, right off the bat, that's an offensive thing because none of us likes to know that there's a standard above us. Nobody likes to know that we are accountable to a higher power. Especially in our age, we want to believe that we are the final authority in all things regarding morality, sexuality, politics, all these different things. We are the judge of everything. And we don't want to think that there's a God in heaven, a God of justice. But think about what that would mean. John Lennon wrote in his famous song, Imagine, these words Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Above German concentration camps, only sky. And above ISIS beheading people, only sky. And above a world where people kill each other and hate each other, only sky. The sky doesn't care. There is no standard. There is no morality. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say that, God, I don't want you to judge me. But please, by all means, judge serial killers and rapists. God, don't show me wrath, but by all means, pour your holy fire on that guy who just cut me off in traffic. That's not how it works. But listen, here, th- this is the good news. There is a God, and he is just. And here's the terrifying news. There is a God, and he is just we're not. If man realizes, without, apart from grace, apart from Christ, man realizes you're condemned before God's perfect law, and you realize that, you're going to come up with your own solutions. So you realize, okay, I've broken God's law, I fall short, well, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to get my life together, I'm going to put forth some effort, I'm going I'm to, starting today, follow God's perfect law. And maybe he'll reward me for the effort. But Paul demolishes that line of thinking in the next verse. He says in verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he's saying that's not going to work. No one can be justified by obedience to the law, because nobody can perfectly keep the law. The law reveals our problem. It reveals that we're sinners, but it can do nothing to help us. It merely crushes us. In Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah says something very graphic about self-righteousness, about thinking you can earn your way to God. He says that all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. A polluted garment is a cloth covered in menstrual fluid. It's a very vivid and disgusting picture of what our righteous deeds look to God. So there are two ways to be damned. You can be damned for breaking God's law, and you can be damned for trying to keep it on your own. And when we offer up our good deeds to God, saying, this is why you should show me favor, not only is it ineffective, but it's offensive to God. Now, the question is, do you believe when he says all this, he's talking about you? This is a hard thing for me because I read this and I go, I understand this, hypothetically speaking. This is true for uh, hypothetical imaginary sinners over there. But when I think about me, that I am this, guilty before God, that the good things that I do can't earn his salvation, that is an offensive thing for me to think about. Because I tend to think that I was a good candidate for salvation because I had avoided all the major sins. Nobody's perfect, but I'm pretty sure God looked at me and said, I see some potential in you. You would make a great Christian. Why don't you join my club? And I'm sure I'm not the only person that can think that way. But Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses. And the word dead in Greek literally means dead. Dead that is what it means. No spiritual vitality, no one seeks after God, no one loves God, no one's searching for God, everybody hates God, no one fears God. No one wants anything to do with him. And Paul is doing something very important here. By saying we're accountable to God and saying that we're guilty, he is He is, forced, he is closing all of our escape hatches. Any kind of thing that we could cling to to say that we're justified before God. He shuts down so that we are forced to stare the law in right in front of us so that he can point us to the only hope that we have. And that's the next point. Justification means that Christ is our only hope. And I love how Paul begins this next part. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So this righteousness that we need, this moral perfection that we need, that we can't get by obeying the law, has appeared, and it's God's own moral character. And it makes sense, because if we can't earn God's righteousness through the law, or if we can't be righteous before the law, we need something outside of the law, something apart from us, to give us a perfect moral record. And he says... The law and the prophets bear witness to this perfect righteousness. So he's saying this isn't plan B. It's not as if God gave us the law and realized, man, they can't keep it. They've got to figure out something else. But all of the Old Testament hints to and whispers about the day when God would manifest, unveil, reveal his perfect righteousness. And we see that in the person of Jesus Christ. The only human being who has ever fulfilled the law. The only human being who did everything God commanded. The only righteous man. And Paul doesn't just say that God has revealed this righteousness in Jesus. But he says that this is the righteousness of God in verse 22 through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So this righteousness isn't just revealed, but it's, it's actually, it can be accessed. It can be given. It can be possessed by us. Now, how do we get in on that? Because we need that. And he tells us. Through faith. Through, by the means of. Faith is the instrument by which we can access this righteousness that we mean. Now, faith is not just a vague sense that things are going to be Okay. It's not a strange, fuzzy feeling, but faith is, is a willful, mental assent, a, a submission to God's rule. It is placing everything under him. It is trusting him completely with your salvation. It's all-encompassing. And that's why when Paul opens most of his letters, he writes, Paul, an apostle, a doulos of Christ, a servant, a slave of Christ. Slaves have no rights. Slaves have no agenda of their own. Their only agenda is their master's agenda. They have no desires beyond their master's desires. Now, why does it have to be by faith? Why is that the instrument that God chose? Well, Paul tells us, he says in verse 23, for, for there is no distinction for all, have fall, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So he's making a parallel sort of argument here. He's saying that just as everybody without distinction, without difference, every person, regardless of your race, your socioeconomic status, your education level, your gender, everyone is radically united as sinners. We all fall short of God's mark, of God's glory. And he says, just as you are all sinners without distinction, you can also become believers, Christians, without distinction. And he does this so that the gospel can be radically inclusive. And Christianity is not a matter of worldly things, race, status, life experience, but a matter of faith in Christ. It's the great equalizer. And faith is by grace as a gift. I love that. Grace means unmerited favor. This this righteousness that God gives, he gives freely to us. It almost sounds redundant if it wasn't so glorious. Grace as a gift. I mean, grace is a gift and all all gifts are by grace. I mean, that's just how it works. But I think Paul is trying to to zero in on the fact that this is purely by God's grace. Free choice to give us this grace. Now, Paul doesn't just stop there. Because right now, Paul has told us what he has done for us, what God has done for us. But he doesn't stop there. He he wants us to know how God accomplished our salvation as well. And it's interesting to think about this, because Paul's about to get real surgical with his theology here and precise. Because he's not writing to non-believers. This is a letter to Christians. This is a letter to people who have already been converted. They've already heard the gospel. They already know what they believe. Why is he telling this to them? It's because he doesn't want them to have, as Lance said a few weeks ago, a vague kind of deism, a vague kind of knowledge that God's up there. He kind of likes me. He forgave me. There's this thing he loves. I don't know. But he wants us to have precision in our doctrine so that we can savor and enjoy every drop of God's glory in our salvation. So that's where he goes. The first thing he points to is the redemption that we have in Christ. So he's zooming in. He's saying, this is what happened. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption we have in Christ. Redemption is a very loaded word and people reading this would have thought about the Roman slave market that would have been surrounding them in this day. And in the Roman slave market, it costs a lot of money to buy someone else's slave. But it costs an extravagant amount of money to free a slave, to buy him out of slavery into freedom. And Paul is using this word so that we understand that We naturally are not morally neutral people waiting over here and God's trying to, you know, reach us. But we we are people enslaved to sin. Everything about us loves sin and hates God. And so for God to buy us out, he has to buy us with a price. And that begs the question, how did God redeem us? How did God purchase us? What currency did he use And this is the heart of Paul's argument. This could even be the heart of Romans. And we're just going there. It's the heart of the gospel. This next phrase. Verse 25. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the currency that God uses to buy us is not gold or silver, but the very blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. This is so important to understand because propitiation has a very specific meaning. The word propitiation means a wrath-deflecting offering to God. A wrath-deflecting offering to God. And people hearing this would have instantly thought about the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is the famous Bible-in-a-year plan destroyer. You know, you read Genesis, and you're like, this is great. And you read Exodus, you're like, yeah, and you get to Leviticus, and you're like, I'm done. (laughs) But if you want Leviticus summed up in a phrase, this is what Leviticus, this is the whole point of Leviticus. Leviticus. God is holy, and you are not. That's the point. And in Leviticus, there is, in Leviticus 16, mention of a day of atonement for the nation of Israel. Now, we often think, you know, people say, God can't be in the presence of sin, and that's true in a sense, but it's it's not true in the sense that God's, like, you know, afraid of sin or some kind of germaphobe with sin. It's more accurate to say that sinners can't be in the presence of God without being vaporized. I mean, you think about when we quoted, when we talked about Isaiah earlier in the in, this, in the uh, in church today, when Isaiah says, "I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm I dwell among unclean people." And so, this Day of Atonement has a very specific function. All of Israel would gather once a year around the tabernacle, which is their makeshift temple and the high priest of Israel would go into the tabernacle and he would bring two goats with him. And the first goat he would kill and its blood would be shed. And the second goat, the high priest would place his hand on its head and confess the sins of Israel over it. And then he would release it and cast it into exile, cut off from Israel, into the wilderness to die. And if you were an Israelite watching that happen, the message was crystal clear. That should be me. That goat that died should be me. That goat that bore my sins and was cast off should have been me. There's a problem with that system because it's an imperfect system. Because if sacrificing animals could atone for sin, they would only have to do it once. And yet, Israel has to offer sins, or offer sacrifices daily, monthly, yearly, over and over and over again. And it's a strange mystery that's all throughout the Old Testament. Why is this? Is this it? Someone once said that if someone read the Old Testament for the first time, their first thought should be, where's part two? Where's part two? This can't be the end of the story. And we see hints of it in Isaiah 53. Isaiah talks about a day when there will be a Messiah, a Savior, a righteous servant of God, a perfect servant of God who's going to come and he's going to be pierced for our transgressions. Crushed, For our iniquities, his soul is going to be made an offering for sin. By him, many will be accounted righteous. So this perfect servant somehow suffers and we benefit from it. Now fast forward thousands of years to the Jordan River. When John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Can you imagine that moment when he says that? Thousands of years of people offering their own sacrifices and finally today is the day when God presents his sacrifice. The only sacrifice that can actually atone for sin. That's why Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that is what makes Christianity unique. In every other religion, God demands man must provide. But only in Christianity... What God demands, God provides. Now, if that is what God is like, if God is preemptive in his forgiveness, if he is lavish in his forgiveness, and we are to be conformed to his image, what does that mean for us? Paul writes in Ephesians 4.32 to the church, be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's some classic Paul applying theology to everyday life. Is there bitterness in your heart? Are you rehearsing your own hurts by someone who has wronged you over and over again building a case against them? Are you consumed with that? Because if you are unwilling to forgive, that reveals your real statement of faith. Because it'll never cost you to forgive what it costs God to forgive. And to withhold forgiveness from your brother is to deny the gospel. But kindness and tenderness and genuine forgiveness, that is just good theology. Now, the next part is crucial. Where Paul goes next is crucial in combating a small view of God. Paul explains everything that God did for us, but look what he says in the second half of verse 25. God puts forward his perfect sacrifice for us, absorbs our sin, justifies us by his grace, and this is to show God's love for sinners. But that's not what he says. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true, but that's not where Paul goes. Paul says that all this is to show God's righteousness. Why does he say that? What, what is he saying? Paul explains. He says, God's righteousness, God's moral character was shown because in his divine forbearance, in his divine patience, he passed over former sins. It doesn't mean that he ignored former sins. God certainly dealt with sin. You can see that in Judges, and he exiled Israel, and all these different things. But he did not give mankind the punishment they deserved. Now, we have to do some backtracking because in our minds, we're conditioned to be man-centered. And so we look at something like the flood and we think, God, that's really harsh. Why don't you flood the world? But that's not how the prophets and the psalmists thought. And if you flip through the psalms and the prophets, there's this consistent refrain. They're wondering, God, why don't you kill more people? Why don't you bring judgment? So many people dishonor you. Why do the wicked flourish? Why won't you deliver us? Why won't you bring your justice? Aren't you just? Aren't you mighty to save? This is because we have a misconception that the gospel is a message where God's mercy comes at the expense of his justice. But that's not the gospel. Because on the cross, we not only have a radical display of God's love, and it is a wonderful display of God's love, but it is also a radical and violent display of God's hatred for sin think about the cross it's so bloody and dark and barbaric and that's because that is God's view of sin his absolute wrath against it and if you lose that you lose the entire gospel and this is the big idea that the gospel is ultimately something that God did for God. He wants the world to know, I am righteous. I I haven't punished people as they deserve. It's not because I lowered my standards and have decided to be a little more lenient on sin, but because I have appointed a day when I will deal with sin. And that's why he says at the present time, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. God says to the whole world, I am just because I did punish your sin in Christ. I did deal with it. It's not pretend. I'm not pretending like you're innocent. I actually dealt with it. And he says, I am also the merciful God because I justified you. I am your justifier. I am the one who spared you because Christ took your place. And so at the cross, God's mercy and his justice are upheld. And God wants to glorify his own name to the nations. That's why Paul says, for his sake, for our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's Perfect life in Christ, Jesus' perfect moral record, credited as if it were ours, and our sinful life credited as if it was his. That is Gospel 101, but that is the truth on which we stand. And that means that if God were to condemn you, to condemn a Christian after his sin has been paid for, for God to do that, he would have to sin. But when God declares you righteous, it is a just declaration, because you are righteous in I want to sum it all up. When you look at this entire passage in its totality, notice all the things that God contributed to our salvation compared to us. God's righteousness through faith in Christ, the glory of God, justified by His grace, His gift, the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward. By his blood. God, 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 everywhere saturating this passage. And our contribution is sinning and falling short. That is the grace of God. The grace of God goes all the way down. When we think about grace, and we often think about unconditional love, but I don't know if we totally understand what that means. Because often we'll think of unconditional love like the love between a father and a child, a parent and a child. You think about a father and his daughter. You know, and his daughter goes up to him and he says, or she says, Dad, do you love me because I behave? Or, Dad, do you love me because I'm smart? And that father, if he's a good father, will say, no. No. I love you because you're my daughter, because you're my girl. That's why I love you. And we say that's unconditional love. And our heartstrings are tugged. But that is not how God loves. Because that is not unconditional love. Think about this. What does he say? I love you because you're my daughter. I love you on the condition that you are biologically related to me, that you are my natural child. You could even say that there's a certain obligation or expectation that a father would love his daughter. But we're not God's natural children. Imagine an orphan. Does that father have any obligation to love that orphan? But we're not even orphans. We're enemies. And the full force of God's grace is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we hated him, cursed him, broke his law, blasphemed his name, God shows us grace. He sets his love on us simply because John Stott says God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. One of my favorite verses is 1 Peter 1:12. And he talks about the mystery of the gospel. And he says it's something that the angels long to look at. I love that imagery think about a couple months ago celebrating baptisms and the whole world is distracted by other things transient things but heaven is full of angels peering over balconies looking at people being baptized going that is amazing people being born again that all of heaven stops to pay attention to a little church on the side of East 8th Street. Do you ever think about that? How often do all of these glorious truths dwell in our minds? What percentage of us is captivated by these things? I need to think about these things more. I need to dwell in these things more. We wonder why we're so easily wooed away by lesser things. But these are glorious truths. Are you looking where the angels are looking? God, in his mercy, when we were unable to save save ourselves, sent his son to be a wrath-deflecting offering for us so that in him we could have the perfect righteousness of God and be justified in his sight to the glory of God. That is good news. We are beggars. This is true. Let's pray.